Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Earlier this month, a very interesting article came across our desks over at FIRE. It was written by Connor Friedersdorf, who, if you're familiar with campus free speech controversies, you were probably familiar with at least some of his work. He writes about these issues often for The Atlantic, and I think writes about them very well. Well, one of his more recent pieces is about a quote-unquote disinvitation at Syracuse University that occurred earlier this summer. Uh, If you're not familiar with the term disinvitation, it's what happens when a speaker is invited to campus and then subsequently disinvited after some sort of controversy or protest. And this disinvitation at Syracuse University stems from a conference that's going to be hosted on campus in the spring of 2017 with the theme, The Place of Religion in Film. Now, one of the organizers for this conference had thought of Shimon Dotan because he's an award-winning filmmaker who sits on the faculty at NYU and who recently finished a feature-length documentary called The Settlers that chronicles the history and the state of the religious settler movement in the West Bank. Now, the organizer reached out to him and said, we'd really like to show your film during this conference. We think the topic is perfectly in line with what we are trying to do, and we'd love to have you come along with the film, and we're willing to pay your travel. Now, a few weeks after Mr. Dotan received this invitation, he received another email from a separate organizer for the conference, this time from Professor Gail Hamner, who's a member of Syracuse University's religion department. Now, I'm going to read a portion of Ms. Hamner's email to Mr. Dotan, because I think what she says here is, in this email is really indicative of the phenomenon that we're seeing on campus right now, especially surrounding these disinvitation attempts. So her email to Mr. Dotan reads, in part, I now am embarrassed to share that my SU colleagues, on hearing about my attempt to secure your presentation, have warned me that the BDS faction on campus, and BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, uh, it's a movement that tries to separate institutions from the state of Israel, uh, have warned me that the BDS faction on campus will make matters very unpleasant for you and for me if you come. In particular, my film colleague in English who granted me affiliate affiliated faculty in the film and screen studies program, and who supported my proposal to the Humanities Council for this conference, told me point blank that if I have not myself seen your film and cannot myself vouch for it to the council, I will lose credibility with a number of film and women gender studies colleagues. Sadly, I have not had the chance to see your film and can only vouch for it through my friends and through published reviews. Clearly, she said, I am politically naive. I also feel tremendous shame in reneging on a half-offered invitation. She continued, Obviously my decision here has nothing to do with you or your work and nothing to do with Bill, who was the man who invited him in the first place, who contacted you in good faith. She says, I feel caught in an ideological matrix and by my own egoic needs to sustain certain institutional affiliations. What she is in essence saying here is, that the political pressures on campus were so strong that she can no longer have or she cannot have a certain movie screened during her conference that might have a certain bias or ideological stance. What she is saying here is that the movie might not fit with the prevailing orthodoxy. And that's troublesome to any of us who care 
about the marketplace of ideas that is supposed to exist on a college campus. What she is essentially saying here is that there is a dogma, and this movie might not fit that dogma. Every year we at FIRE see a lot of these sorts of disinvitations, and I think they came from the same place, or they come from the same place that the Syracuse University disinvitation came from. They come from an effort to cleanse campus of controversy, to cleanse campus, in some cases, as in this cases, of certain ideologies that might not fit with the prevailing orthodoxy. We noticed this trend a couple of years ago and started documenting it on our website. Uh, We have what's called a disinvitation database, where since 2000, we have documented every instance that's come across our desks of an attempt by a student or faculty member or maybe even community members to get a speaker who has been invited to campus disinvited. Now, those attempts aren't always successful, but it's, it, it points to the trend that we see of students or faculty members or community members not wanting some viewpoints on campus, which we think, again, is problematic for a place that's purpose is to expose people to new ideas and to help them to challenge their beliefs. Our president, Greg Lukianoff, who's been on the show before, wrote in his broadside, Freedom From Speech, uh, that these attempts are going to push administrators who are always risk adverse to never invite anyone who might be a controversial speaker to campus for commencement addresses or other sorts of addresses. And his prediction is starting to bear out. Earlier this summer, the University of South Carolina actually said it will no longer invite outside speakers to give a commencement address. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of sad. Um, I, now, we cannot say for certain whether that move by the University of South Carolina uh, was a result of the publicity um, and the prevalence of these disinvitations attempts, but it might have been part of their calculus. And if it is, it's, it's a sad development. Now, I want to be clear about these disinvitation attempts because uh, in many ways, they are also a form of protest. Uh, we at FIRE fully support the right of faculty and students to make their opinions known about universities' decisions to invite any speaker. Uh, that being said, freedom of speech and academic freedom depend almost entirely on our ability to handle hearing opinions we dislike and to engage those opinions constructively and creatively. Um, today's guest is someone who can be found within that aforementioned disinvitation database. He belongs to the list of people who have been invited to campus and then subsequently disinvited from campus. Uh, these people include uh, includes people from across the political expect- uh, spectrum, people like Condoleezza Rice, uh, Ion Hersia Lee on the right, uh, people like Bill Maher or International Monetary Fund Chief uh, Christine Lagarde on the left. Um, our guest today is Jason Riley. Uh, he is a senior fellow at the Manhast- Manhattan Institute, and he's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, uh, where he's worked for more than 20 years. He is also a commentator for Fox News. In April 2016, he was disinvited from Virginia Tech and then reinvited after the outrage over his disinvitation. And the reason he was reinvited, and it's important to note this, is because he is a media personality. And he'll talk about this during our interview. He has big institutions like Fox News, like the Wall Street Journal behind him. So that when an invitation is extended to him and then 
subsequently uh, retracted because of his ideological viewpoints on different things like, um, uh, you know, capitalism or race, he, he can blow the whistle. And he did. He blew the whistle in a, in a column for the Wall Street Journal in May about this attempt. And the interesting thing about him blowing the whistle is that we learned a lot about what was going on at Virginia Tech um, after it disinvited him from speaking on campus because there were subsequently FOIA requests. And what those FOIA requests reveal is that universities, you know, in the same way that they're risk averse from inviting a controversial speaker to campus in the first place, or, uh, you know, they're, they're also risk inverse in the subsequent blowback that can come if there is media attention on that on their disinvitation. Uh, the FOIA request, uh, which was done by this news publication, this online publication called Heat Street, revealed that Virginia Tech's media department was very much monitoring the conversation that happened at following Jason Riley's blowing the whistle about his disinvitation. And uh, so was its fundraising department. Now, we at FIRE have always said when there are trends on campus or when there are events on campus that are decidedly illiberal, such as campus disinvitations, such as censorship of political viewpoints, as we're going to see a lot of, and we already have seen a lot of this fall. Um, it, it can't stand, uh, universities cannot defend in public what they do in private, and they cannot stand, and they cannot hold up against alumni pushback. And Heat Street and their FOIA request to Virginia Tech following Jason Riley's disinvitation noted in its correspondences within the institution all of the cases or many of the cases of alumni withholding donations, canceling football trips in the fall, and even faculty members uh, within the institution or outside the institution who said they will no longer write letters of recommendation to Virginia Tech. Alumni, and I cannot stress this enough, have tremendous power to influence administrator's decision on campus. And the New York Times recently reported about this. Um, they reported about how there have been declines in donations um, following student illiberalism on campus this past fall, uh, student activism, which in many cases has seemed to fly in the face of free speech. They reported that among 35 small and selective liberal arts colleges, um, 29% were behind in 2015 dollars and 64 were percent 64 percent were behind in donors and uh, the article makes it very clear that this is a result of alumni discontent with what's happening uh, on campus as far as free speech concerns go there's uh there's a lot to be learned from these disinvitation attempts as we've seen and especially this one with Jason Riley um, because he was such a media powerhouse um he had access to institutions like the wall street journal and fox news so i this is a longer monologue than i usually go on so i'm going to get out the way get out of the way <laughs> and um turn it over to mr jason riley well jason riley thanks for coming to philadelphia today thanks for having me. you're addressing the fire student network tonight yes is this the first speech that you've ever get given on what's happening on campus um i believe it is the first one uh centered around this yes i mean it's come up in previous speeches or q a's yeah uh after i've given previous speeches but this is is, is the first time i think that i was asked to address 
this issue um, uh, just head on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, columnist for the Wall Street Journal, uh, commentator for Fox News, and you're also in distinguished co- company in another category. Uh, you join the company of the likes of Condoleezza Rice, uh, former Secretary of State, uh, Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, George Will, who's a oh. Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post columnist. I'll let you speak for yourself. Why are you in such company? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> a, I'm a reluctant uh, uh, part of this list. I... Um, you know, professional journalists are taught uh, to report the story and not become part mm-hmm. of the story. And for most of my career in journalism, I've, I've managed to, um, to do that. Uh, but this time, I thought it was really unavoidable. Um, I was asked to um, uh, give a speech at Virginia Tech University earlier this year. Uh, and 10 days later, I was disinvited. And... Um, uh, which was bad enough. Mm-hmm. But what really um, uh, upset me even more was that after I was disinvited, the school said, uh, you couldn't have been disinvited because you were never invited in the first place. And uh, that's when I decided to push back and um, make public the original email invitation. And then really social media took it from there and <laughs> talk yeah. radio. And um, a bunch of other people stepped in, including fire. I was very appreciative of their support at that time, and uh, and then I was ultimately reinvited to speak at the school, um, and said I'd do so so long as you uh, issue another statement saying that I was in fact invited <laughs> and then disinvited. And once they did that, I, I uh, agreed to speak again, and so I'll be I'll be back there in the spring. Yeah, you wrote a you wrote an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal, it's published on May third. Talking about this scenario, let's take a step back. Why would anyone want to disinvite you in the first place? Well, I think there are a couple things going on here. I think that there is an attempt on college campuses to shield students from conservative viewpoints in mm-hmm. general. And I write as a, from the perspective, I'm an opinion journalist who writes from the perspective of an unabashed free market conservative. Mm-hmm. So I think there is an attempt to shield students uh, from conservatives uh, in general, but black conservatives in particular. I think uh, there is still a notion, uh, alive and well, particularly on the left, that uh, blacks are supposed to think certain ways about public policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, nowhere is that notion more vigorously reinforced than on our college campuses, where uh, if you are an independent black thinker who steps out of line, you are not only wrong, uh, you are a sellout. You are an Mm -hmm. Uncle Tom. You are a traitor to your race. And um, I think that the identity politics of the left is very dependent on black groupthink to, uh, to maintain their black support. And that's why they see black independent thinkers in particular as such a threat, mm-hmm. um, a threat to them politically in particular. Yeah. And this this worry on the part of Virginia Tech that you're coming to campus you bec- and thinking differently than maybe other black student groups on mm-hmm. campus uh, might raise the ire of, uh, it might spark campus protests, came as a result of their experience with Charles Murray. Am I right? He came and spoke on campus. It's, uh, that is one of the uh, episodes that yeah. they cited, that the school cited in disinviting me. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but what was interesting was that I was not invited to speak about race. I was invited to give a speech about uh, capitalism. Um, I was invited by the business school to give mm-hmm. an annual lecture. Previous speakers had been, uh, you know, Nobel economist James Buchanan. Uh, another speaker had been a former governor of Virginia, James Gilmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, another speaker had been a uh, an economics writer for uh, the Washington Post and Newsweek, Robert Samuelson. So. What was bizarre in the disinvitation note was saying uh, one of the reasons we had to rescind this invitation is because um, there was concerns over your writings on race in the Wall Street Journal. And they weren't any more specific than that. And I've been writing for the Journal for more than 20 years, so I wish they had been more specific, but they weren't. But I, I was a little puzzled because I had not been invited to speak about race. Yeah. Um, Yet my writings on race are apparently what got me disinvited. Yeah. The president of the university, Tim Sands, issued a statement after a lot of this controversy grabbed headlines. Uh, Megyn Kelly Mm -hmm. had it on her show. You, of course, wrote your op-ed National Review, reported on it. And he said, uh, this is a message to the community. Uh, As you may have heard, a faculty committee charged with making a recommendation for a fall 2016 speaker made a selection from a pool of potential speakers, and that invitation was accepted. We learned subsequently that a faculty member, without the knowledge of the committee or the authority to do so, had extended an invitation to speak in the same slot to you. Mm -hmm. Do you think he was obfuscating the the true motive behind the disinvitation? I, I, I don't know, I, and I haven't had any further dealings with him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he, when he issued the invitation, this, this professor who issued the invitation mm-hmm. uh, taught at the business school, um, described himself as in charge of this lecture series. Mm-hmm. So, again, I found it odd, that wording by the president there, mm-hmm. um, that, that this person didn't have the authority to do what he did. Yeah. Um, but... In the disinvitation note, that is not what the professor said. Mm -hmm. He said, we are disinviting you because of your writings about race. Um, uh, He didn't say, I'm disinviting you because I didn't have the authority to invite you in the first place. Mm -hmm. That was something uh, that came up later. Um, and was brought up by the by the president. That was not what was what I was told. That's not what you, what you yeah. were told. Heat Street, which is a newer publication, uh-huh. FOIA'd, uh, did a public information request of Virginia Tech after this all came to light and found some really fascinating information about what was going on behind the scenes at Virginia uh-huh. Tech after you had published your opinion piece, after it had been picked up and before they had re-invited you. And their, Virginia Tech's media department uh, did an analysis and they found that between May 2nd and May 4th, uh, Facebook found that 84,000 people were talking about the search term, your name, Jason Riley. You had a potential reach of 2.9 million users on Twitter discussing this. Uh, mm. The university received 149 emails critical yeah. of their decision. Uh, and you also got, and this is, this is, I think, really important for people to understand, at least people who are trying to advocate for change on campus with regards to free speech, a lot of pushback from other faculty members and from alumni. Yeah. You had yeah. one political science professor at King University who wrote to Virginia Tech saying, I will actively discourage my students from attending your graduate programs or from transferring into your undergraduate program in the future, and I will not write any letters of recommendation for anyone wishing to attend your program. You had someone say, 
I am packing away my Virginia Tech apparel, canceling my plans to attend football games this fall. <laughs> Don't ask for future donations to the university. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. And they go on and on and on. Yeah, you, yeah, you, seem, to, you seem to be suggesting <laughs> that Virginia Tech's change of heart and the reinvitation uh, had less to do or maybe nothing to do with them seeing the light mm-hmm. in terms of uh, the need and propriety of exposing their students to different points of view. Yeah. It doesn't sound like that's what drove uh, <laughs> their change of heart here. It sounds like what drove their change of heart is uh, a nightmare press situation. Yeah. Um, the fact that I happen to have access to powerful, large media outlets mm-hmm. like the Wall Street Journal, like Fox News. I had access to groups like FIRE and the National Association of Scholars who were willing to go to bat for me. Mm-hmm. And they changed their mind about this, uh, not because uh, they decided they had acted improperly, but because they decided that the press, the, the bad publicity was um, was taking its toll, and mm. and I find that um, sad. Yeah, sad, very sad. But I also want to add one thing very quickly. We we, we like to talk about this in terms of a of, of liberal censorship of conservatives. I always encourage people to take a look at that database, that mm-hmm. disimitation database that Fire has been compiling over the years. It has more than three hundred names. And yes, it does have a lot of conservatives, but you will also find names in there like Madeleine Albright, President Clinton's uh, Secretary of State. You'll find uh, Bill Ayers. 60s radicals like yeah. Bill Ayers yeah. and Angela Davis. Mm-hmm. You'll find Marxist professors like Cornell West. This is not a problem exclusive no. to liberals, although, as Fire has noted, chances are if you are disinvited or if there is a, a big to-do about you being invited, um, the, the complaints will come overwhelmingly from the left. And I think that is a function of the fact that, that left-wing progressives largely control mm-hmm. the university these days. But we, we should, in fairness, note that it is not a problem exclusively. No, it is not. Left. And I happen to have yeah. some of those yeah. facts in front of me. So we've started collecting this data since 2000. Yeah. Uh, and since 2000, we've and we don't say this is comprehensive. This is just right. the stuff that managed right. to come across our desk. We've uncovered 305 incidents in which students or faculty have pushed for speakers to be disinvited, of which 131 were successful. Of those 305 attempts, over half occurred since 2010. And this was where we get to your talk about how it comes from both the right and the yeah. left. Of the 305 disinvitation attempts, 175 came from the left. Quote unquote left, you know, we're doing our best to characterize it. Uh, And 101 came from the right. Um, I think 538, this is um, sort of a statistical news organization, had a very interesting study, though, that in 2013 and 2014 commencement season, not a single Republican figure was invited to speak at the commencements of any of the top 30 universities or top 30 liberal arts colleges. In contrast, 25 Democratic political figures spoke at these same schools' commencements, 11 of whom gave the main address. So it doesn't exclusively come from the right uh, or from the left, right. uh, but it, it does seem like the, the statistics bear out that it, it comes more so from the That's just maybe by the yeah. nature of the character of the university. Oh, I think that that has everything to yeah. do with it. Um, and I think the situation has gotten more lopsided 
over the years in terms of ideological representation among professors on campus, I think. Um, and you talk about you, that in yeah, your op-ed. Yeah, I mean, Marxists outnumber Republicans. Mm -hmm. Mar not liberals, yeah. Marxists yeah. <laughs> outnumber <laughs> Republicans on campus. And, I, and, and again, the problem is, is that this is going to affect outspokenness. It's going to affect um, uh, the willingness of students to to challenge views that they hear on campus if yeah. they think they're going to be shamed or worse yeah. by faculty and administrators. Uh, and that's not what we want. We want kids um, challenged outside of their comfort zone mm -hmm. during their college years. You know, we want their we want them to sharpen their critical thinking skills and and. When you have this sort of policing of speech on campus, um, it's hard to it's hard for that to happen. I don't I don't think we're doing these kids any favors, uh, letting them live in these bubbles and treating them with kid gloves for four years on campus. That's not what the real world is like. There there are no such thing uh, as as you know, worries about microaggressions and safe spaces and trigger warnings in the real world. Um, and and I don't think. Kids are being properly prepared mm -hmm. for the real world um, today on college campus, by large. You think this is a new phenomenon? I think it's it's, it's not new. It's not new, but mm -hmm. it's it's. I think it's gotten worse. Um, but no, it's it's not new. I think we went through uh, the speech codes before in the '80s and '90s, mm -hmm. and the political correctness run amok. And there are a number of of books and studies done about this. So no, it's it's not something new. I think it is something though that is. That has gotten progressively worse over time. Um, you know, if, if 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 fire started out as, as as merely needed 17 years ago, today I think it's it's indispensable. In yeah. the work that it's doing. Are you, did you have any experiences with this sort of thing when you were in college? You said you went to SUNY Buffalo. I did not. Um, I recall being in college in the early 90s when you had um, controversies over. Um, uh, anti-Semitic professors mm -hmm. like Leonard Jeffries at mm -hmm. CUNY in New York. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, these people and people representing his views mm -hmm. would come to speak at, at my campus. So did George Will. Yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> I, I remember hearing from uh, former Black Panthers uh, coming to speak. Um, so, I, I no, I, I don't recall... Um, I don't recall this su suppression yeah. of speech or this attempt to to silence uh, dissenting voices. Uh, you had kids who would protest and do their candlelight vigils, and mm. you know that that sort of thing went on. Yeah. Um, but I I don't I don't think um, it it reached the extreme levels of of today. When I when I went to speak uh, earlier this year at the uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, I was invited by the uh, college Republicans to speak there. And uh, they told me that they had cleared my name with liberal pressure groups on campus to make sure there would be no trouble if I came. That, that, was, that would have been the unheard of. The new gatekeepers. <laughs> that, that would have been unheard of when I was, when I was in college. The, the, the idea that conservative groups need to vet their speaker list mm -hmm with liberal groups on campus to avoid trouble. Uh, I, I, I think that is just um, outrageous, but it's, a, it's an indication of you know, how bad things have gotten. What's, a, what's the misunderstanding on those students' part? Uh, what do you view as the fundamental role of a university? 
if you had to say I, again I, I go I would go back to we want kids to sharpen their their critical thinking skills we want them to learn how to uh, break down arguments uh, take on different points of view understand where other people mm-hmm. are coming from and the, the the problem is that today these kids are taught a they're being taught what to think mm-hmm. more than how to think which yeah. I think is the initial they're, they're being indoctrinated instead of educated in many yeah. cases and that's an initial problem but they're also being taught to view people who disagree with them as not only wrong but evil <laughs> not <laughs> worthy of debating yeah uh, they're taught that saying I'm offended should end a conversation mm-hmm. um, they're not taught to they, they mistake slogans for arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is this is the problem, um, as I see it. You know. Yeah, yeah. So one of the reasons that Alan Charles Coors, I don't know if you're familiar with him, he's a co-founder of FIRE, he's a professor of the Enlightenment at the University of Pennsylvania, got interested in these issues in the first place. He was a, when he was, he was an undergraduate student at Princeton, and he had a professor, a self-proclaimed Marxist professor, uh, and it was coming to the end of their political theory course and they had to write this big paper and so the students wrote their paper including professor Coors and the professor as he's getting back going back to hand out the grades for for the papers said to the students I am profoundly disappointed in what you have all turned into me you have turned into me a paper with ideas putting forth arguments that you thought I wanted to hear but that I know you all do not agree with I'm going to what I'm going to do is I'm going to tear up these papers we're going to try this again, but instead of having the same prompt, I'm going to give you the book that I think is puts forth the most dangerous ideas of the 20th century. And that book was Frederick Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. And he said, I want you to parrot these arguments. And so Alan Charles Coors read the book. He parroted the arguments, and he said it changed his intellectual course hmm. afterwards. Um, and I don't see professors doing that today. This idea that if you dis, if you agree with me, that's maybe not the best thing. You know, that's maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Where is it? It doesn't encourage any debate. You know, there's a there's an argument or there's a debate on the right uh, that I think relates to what you're saying. Um, it's a there's a push among some conservatives to get more conservative professors on campus. Mm-hmm. They want to somehow try and counterbalance uh, the liberals on campus. And I'm very skeptical of this um, effort. Um, I recall having a conversation with uh, the economist Thomas Sowell, who's based at the Hoover Institution, but for many years uh, taught economics at any number of schools, uh, uh, Amherst, UCLA, um, and other schools. And he tells a story um, about the end of the semester uh, of a course he taught on, on Marx. And he said that the, a group of kids came up to him on the last day of class and said, you know, Professor Sowell, we really enjoyed this course, but we still have no idea what you personally think about Karl Marx. And Sowell said, I considered that the highest compliment any student could ever pay me. Mm-hmm. It was not my job to tell them what I thought about Karl Marx. And I think Seoul has the right idea. I think that the goal should be to get politics out of the classroom, 
not to try and counterbalance mm -hmm. conservative professors and liberal professors. I'd rather they keep their personal politics out of this. Um, that's, that's I think that should be the goal. Do you think that points to trends on campus now where in order to really grapple with an idea, people, people need to know the identity of the advocate for that idea? <laughs> <laughs> It well, and that's and that's a very Marxist notion in and of itself. I mean, this came up when um, when when uh, recently when when Donald Trump was talking about the quote unquote Mexican judge yeah. overseeing the civil case uh, concerning Trump University, that there's this sort of ethnic or racial determinism at, at play, and people mm -hmm. can only act and think in ways that uh, groups uh, yeah. you know, as part of their, their identity. Um, but you're right. I, I, I think there is a lot of that going on, mm -hmm. and it does mostly come, come out of the left in the sort of identity politics that they practice. And yeah. I think it's very um, corrosive and not, again, not what a college education should be about. Um, and, and I think there could be a lot, a lot of long-term damage being done here in the way these um, with the, how, the way these students are being instructed in these matters. You, you all are, you're on the editorial board at the Wall Street Journal. No, no more. No I, more? I, I was for, for many years, but I'm no longer on the editorial board. I'm, I'm um, just a columnist. Just a columnist. Well, the editorial board and a lot of the columnists mm -hmm. write frequently about these issues. Oh, it yeah. seems to be a theme within the Wall Street Journal, so I'd encourage anyone listen to, to follow the coverage and the editorials and the opinion pieces um, yeah, you will, those you editorials. Will, you, you will de detect uh, quite a strong libertarian strain in some of those... Uh, uh, editorials uh, yeah. and, and, and columnists by, uh, by editorial board members. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you, you, going forward, you might see more of that. I, 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 there was a, a sort of generational divide. Um, I think you had a, some more traditional conservatives among older members of the editorial board. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the younger generation coming along, um, there was a lot more libertarianism there. Yeah, um, yeah mm -hmm. it's going to be interesting going forward. What would you recommend? So, <laughs> I, I, I'm a as as a lot of you reporters would call me a PR flack. <laughs> I work in communications okay. at Fire, uh, and one of the number one rules in communications is to not make enemies with those who buy paper by the ton and ink by the barrel. Uh, <laughs> Virginia Tech's PR department clearly did not get that message, but you know, not everyone buys paper by the ton and ink by the barrel. So, what's right. the message then to those? who are disinvited or those on campus who are trying to fight back against the thought police or who are having their art censored, how, how do they win? That's an excellent question. And, and again, I feel very fortunate that I had these huge news organs that I could turn to mm -hmm. uh, to go to bat for me. Not everyone has that. Um, and, and what's sad is, you know, you mentioned those names of people who had been disinvited and, and, I, I have no business in that category. Even when it comes to my <laughs> occupation, I'm no George Will. Yeah. The idea that they felt so threatened by someone even uh, in, in my level mm -hmm. in journalism, I think speaks volumes of how seriously speech is being policed on campus. Yeah. If they cannot abide me, my, my goodness. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, but the message is to keep up the good fight. Um, um, I think social media, in a way, um, allows people to push back in ways they, they couldn't before. Uh, and, and again, even people who don't have access to huge news outlets to go to bat for them mm -hmm. can find ways on Twitter and Facebook and so forth to push back. So it's, it's mm -hmm. you know, I, I think um, it's a new tool yeah. that, um, that proponents of free speech 
uh, can can use. Uh, I, I think. Um, and the the, yeah. the universities are monitoring it, as we saw with that Virginia Tech FOIA report. I mean, they're they, looking they at are, the mentions. They, they're looking at the discussion that's happening on social. We try and bring you know, get people to get active in any way they can. Yeah. Social media alumni are so powerful. Yes, you know. Yeah, and and in the end, again, Virginia Tech did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not convinced that they did it for the right reasons, but I think they do deserve credit for mm-hmm. doing doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, you said when you were talking there about the response, you know, abide me. It's not It's not even in these cases when you get invited to campus that, that people need to abide you. You know, it's, it's, it's not even, it, because most of these cases, there's an opportunity to engage you. It, and they do. That's, yeah. that's the thing. Um, you know, I don't go around to these campuses trying to uh, change kids' minds. I'm not recruiting them to some cause or some movement. I am doing something very, very simple. I'm exposing them to alternative perspectives. Mm -hmm. Then they can go make up their own mind about what to think. Mm -hmm. Uh, My concern is that they're not getting enough variety of opinions and perspectives from most of the people, most of the adults that they encounter on campus. I'm trying to add to that educational experience. They will come away from their experience with me and go make up their own minds about the issues of the day, and that's what we want. Yeah. Um, the, the, the shame here is that the people in charge of academia, uh, academia today want to shield them from these, from these other points of view. But you're right. My typical experience at these schools has been um, I give my speech, Sometimes I'll debate a professor there on campus. Other times I'll just speak and do a Q&A. But the kids who disagree do not hesitate to engage during the Q&A. Mm-hmm. We have a very spirited debate sometimes, but it is always civil. I have never been shouted down. I have never been run off campus, asked mm-hmm. not to return. Nothing like this has ever happened before, which again is what puzzled me about this reaction from Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. Not Nothing in my experience um, uh, led should have led them to believe that that would happen to me. I mean, I try and bring more light than heat to these discussions. And Mm -hmm. I realize that when you're talking about things like race, um, which I sometimes do, um, things can get very emotional. But, uh, you know, I'm not in there throwing bombs. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm engaging the students. And and in my experience, they seem to appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It's a very John Stuart Mill-esque argument you make there. He (laughs) talks about how... Uh, the watchman goes to sleep when there's no enemy in the field, and how you know, you know, you you only hold a truth as a dead dog, more as a prejudice if it's never challenged. Uh, so it sounds very million yeah. there. You said you never have had someone chase you off or shout you down, but what do you expect then when you go to Virginia Tech in the fall? I I I, I still don't expect to get shouted down or chased. I, I, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's always possible that. Um, you know, someone could rile up a crowd by misrepresenting what you have to say. Um, so I guess there's always that possibility. But um, but you're not talking about race. You said you said you're talking. Well, I, I was invited to speak about whatever I want to. Okay. I, I want to speak about. I think um, I'm thinking about uh, talking about free speech on campus. Oh, really? Frankly, um, I. Um, you know, I had to go through the trouble of writing a speech for fire. I might as well try and use it again. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I was I was I was gonna write uh, you know, talk about um, the challenges that um, people with dissenting voices still have in trying to um, be heard on campus today. I think it's uh, 
it's it's an important subject, and and I think uh, the kids at Virginia Tech should certainly know what what the adults on campus have been up to <laughs> in trying to uh, prevent someone like me from being heard. Um, so I, I was I was thinking about uh, about talking about that. Uh, mm-hmm. Although you're right uh, on the issues of race. I mean, if I, if, if if I was known for um, you know going around the campus defending. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement as, as a force for good, if I was known for uh, saying that the problems in these ghetto communities are, are, are not the, uh, uh, the young thugs committing all the crimes but the police, mm-hmm. um, Virginia Tech probably would have invited me to, to give the commencement address. <laughs> um, but that's not what, what I go around saying. I, 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 I present a, a different point of view about racial inequality in America, and about um, the role that um, that racism has played historically versus today in Black advancement, and and that those points of view um, are often not welcome among the people in control of, of college campuses today. Well, we'd love for you to test drive your speech here tonight, <laughs> and I think uh, so would the Senior Associate Vice President for University Relations at Virginia Tech, who, in the FOIA thing, said perhaps we could invite him to speak on a panel about how colleges are and aren't fostering free speech and intellectual honesty. <laughs> this could be powerful. Exactly. Stay tuned. Jason, thanks for coming. Thank you. <laughs> that was Jason Riley. You can learn more about Jason and his work at his website, jasonreillyonline.com, or by Googling his name, J-A-S-O-N-R-I-L-E-Y. If you Google his name, one of the first search results that will come up, actually, will be his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about his disinvitation from Virginia Tech. If you're interested in learning more about disinvitations, I encourage you all to go to our website, thefire.org, scroll over to the Resources tab, and visit our disinvitation database, which chronicles all the disinvitations that have come across our desks uh, since 2000. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk. And I'm calling it a slash now, I promise. Uh, a listener kindly informed me a couple of weeks ago that I was incorrectly calling a backslash a forward slash. Um, so I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to refer to it as a slash. So you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoy the show, please, please, please consider rating us or posting a review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, It's one of the easiest things you can do to help us get more ears on the show. So until next time, thank you for listening.